Let's um, let's seriously turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter twenty. That's the second book of the Bible, right up near the front. Exodus twenty, verse three. We're studying the Ten Commandments this semester. If you've been coming to large group, and I try to do this at the beginning of. Uh, every series or somewhere near the beginning and a couple times during the semester uh, is I want to make sure I'm giving credit where credit's due. Um, All of the things that I'm teaching you I've learned from somebody. Okay? Uh, That's the way it is. There really is nothing new under the sun as Ecclesiastes said. Uh, And so it would actually be a dangerous thing for me to get up and tell you something that you know, no one in uh, Christianity has ever said. So uh, I'm indebted to a lot of people. I'm indebted to a lot of campus ministers that I've studied uh, the, uh, over the years of, uh, and who have taught me about the Ten Commandments. I'm indebted to a man by the name of Philip Ryken. Uh, he's got a book on the Ten Commandments that I'm gleaning a lot of things from this semester. And then especially the one, the only Tim Keller, of course. Uh, who is a pastor in, at Redeemer Church in New York City. So I just want to make sure that I'm giving credit uh, to those folks for uh, some of the things that we're learning this semester. Uh, over the last few weeks, we have been really doing some intro work on the Ten Commandments and putting the commandments in the context of the Christian life, putting the commandments in the context of the Bible. And if you look at your handout, you'll notice that we read the scripture earlier of Romans chapter 1. You're saying, well, that's the New Testament. What are we doing here? Every week, most every week, I'm going to try to pull in a New Testament passage that helps expand upon one of the commandments that we are looking at on that particular night. So just know that that's what, where that's coming from. Uh, tonight, we're starting, obviously, at the beginning. We're starting with commandment number one, have no other gods before me. And you need to know that the order is significant. This is the most fundamental commandment. And it's very intentional that God places it first because it is the one that comes before all the others and lays the foundation for every commandment that we're going to be studying this semester. Basically, God is saying, before I want to teach you about what I demand of you and what your life should look like, and that's the emphasis of commandments 5 through 10, God is saying, I want to show you what I'm like, and I'm going to show you who you are in relationship to me. And tonight, very clearly, one of the things we learn about God is that he does not share the stage with any other performers, that God refuses to have any other colleagues. God even refuses to have any rivals. You see, we often live as if we can just give God only part of our life, like he gets a part of the pie, and that often looks like living for ourselves Monday through Saturday, and then Sunday is kind of like the Lord's Day. And so I'm going to give that day to him. And God refuses uh, to have us put, put him in our back pocket, in his back pocket. In our back pocket. Um, He demands all of us. He demands all that we are and all that we have. And so tonight we're going to start with commandment number one. And we're going to read Exodus 20 verse 3. 
Very short scripture reading tonight. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. This is God's holy and inspired word. Let me pray. Father, we pray that you would be near to us. As we've said many times before, unless you come, uh, nothing of eternal or lasting value is going to happen here. Uh, I'm just someone up here talking, and these are just words on a page. Unless you come by your Spirit and apply these words to our hearts. And so come, Holy Spirit. Uh, We need to be changed. We need you to show us what this commandment is all about. Would you do that in Jesus' name? Amen. The Ten Commandments begin, as I read, with the commandment, have no other gods before me. And the breaking of this commandment in the Bible is called idolatry. Now, you've might, maybe you've heard that word, and you probably don't like that word. Uh, it's not a popular word, idolatry. And if you've heard the word, uh, you'll, you'll know that it, it, it sounds a little archaic, doesn't it? It sounds a little old, and so yesterday. It sounds foreign uh, to many of us. But we need to know tonight that idolatry is alive and well today. Idolatry is alive and well in this place tonight. Idolatry is alive and well in my heart and is alive and well in your heart and is alive and well on this campus. Let me share an illustration from my own life. During my first year at Samford, as the campus minister, I was there for six years as the campus minister. And during my first year, uh, I was basically starting the work. It had been there a couple of years, but I was basically planting the ministry there. And I was determined that no matter how hard I had to work and how many hours I had to work and how hard I had to try, that I was going to make this thing go. I was going to make it happen. And midway through the second semester, the spring semester, none of my goals were being reached. None of the things that I thought would happen were happening. None of my expectations were being met. And on the outside things, I had it all together. But on the inside, I was devastated. On the inside, I was coming apart. I was at the end of my rope. And I had basically driven my wife and my family in the ground all in the name of the ministry. And I remember this day in the spring, walking in the front door of our house and immediately collapsing on the rug right inside our front door. And I got in the fetal position and I began to weep. Why was I weeping? Well, those were just symptoms of a much deeper issue in my life. The weeping in the fetal position. The deeper, deeper issues of my heart were that my idols of approval, my idols of success and reputation and image were being laid bare and being shattered right before my eyes into a million little pieces You know something is an idol in your life 
when it is taken away from you or when it is threatened in some way and it's not just a minor setback but it feels like you're coming apart on the inside. What is that in your life? What causes that kind of reaction? What causes you when it's threatened or taken away to get in the fetal position, not literally like I was, maybe, but at least in your heart and on the inside causes you to get in the fetal position? Friends, that will reveal your idols. You see, an idol is anything that you're looking to to make life work for you outside of Jesus. An idol is anything that you're looking to to soothe the pain or deliver you from the pain of living in a broken, fallen world. An idol is anything that you're looking to to plug into to make yourself feel alive. Anything you're looking to to make to plug into to give you worth and significance and value. That day, as I lie weeping in the fetal position, my wife walks in and is basically like, what in the heck's happened to my husband? <laughs> but she says a couple things to me, and one thing I remember very clearly. She says, Jason, Jesus is at work in your life. And you know what? That was absolutely what I needed to hear. Friends, because Jesus loved me, he was taking my idols of success, approval, and image, and reputation, and he was shattering them into a thousand little pieces. And you know what God wants to do in our lives tonight? He wants to take your idols, and he wants to shatter them into a thousand little pieces. Why? Here's the thing, not because he's mad at you, because he loves you, because he wants to be near to you, and when we are serving our idols instead of him, he can't be near to us, and so God is committed to doing whatever it takes to be near to you. He's committed to doing whatever it takes to regain the affections of your heart. And I don't know about you, but that is the best news in the world. Does it mean it's not going to hurt? Well, not necessarily. But here's what it means. It means that you and I aren't in this thing alone. That we have someone that is fighting for us, battling for the affections and for the thoughts and for the desires of our hearts. And Jesus will settle for nothing than complete and absolute victory in our hearts. Tonight we're going to talk obviously about idolatry and we're going to look at the foundation of idolatry, number one, the dynamics of idolatry, and then finish up with the solution. Look at number one, the foundation of idolatry. Behind this first commandment is a whole theology of humanity which states that human beings are created with this innate capacity as Tim Keller says, uh, to lock into what is called power centers. We're created with this innate capacity to lock into things that help us make sense of ourselves. We see this in the Bible in two places. Genesis chapter 2 
If you were those early chapters of Genesis, human beings are created. God created man. And if you look at those verses, he created man in whose image? He created us in his image. And so here's what that means. God is our creator. He is the creature. But because we are... He is the creator, we are the creature. But because he is our creator, and we are created in his image, it means that man is given some measure of authority over his environment. But notice, because God is creator, that is a derived authority. It's an authority given to us by God himself. Nowhere in the Bible does it suggest that man is allowed to act, to think, or to speak outside of direct dependence upon God. Second place in Scripture we see it is actually in the passage we looked at last week, Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2. Look at those verses if you have your Bible open. God says, I am the Lord your God who rescued you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In the Hebrew, the word for God there is Elohim. And it's very significant. Elohim means mighty one. And so the writer is doing something very important here. He is saying by the fact of using Elohim for the word God, he is reminding us that God is our creator. And that as our creator, he owns us. And he has the right to do with us whatever he pleases. Now, before you react to that, I know that is a bit hard to swallow, isn't it? Because it makes God sound like this dictator and it makes us sound like robots. But Christianity is different, okay? Different because it expresses the sovereignty of God by treating us, you and I, as subjects, not as objects. There's a big difference. An object is something that is to be acted upon and something to be manipulated. On the other hand, a subject is what? Something to be appreciated. Something to be studied Something to be known deeply. And so in essence, the beginning of the commandments are this. Yes, it's true. I am Elohim, God says. I am your creator and you are my creatures. And I have the right to do with you whatever I please. But notice, if you look in your Bible, you'll see that word LORD is in all caps, correct? And God says, but notice that I am Yahweh. That's the covenant. If you see it, all caps, that's Yahweh, meaning that's the covenant name for God. I am Yahweh Elohim. At this point, insert everything that we talked about last week, about all the commandments flowing out of relationship. Because what God is saying is, I am your God. But I am a personal God. And I have and desire a relationship with a real person. Not a robot or a toy. You see, the Bible says that that kind of relationship is called a covenant. And a covenant is something that is a bond or a connection or a trust. 
Human beings, here's what this means. We are built covenantally. What's the point? Here's the point. You and I were built by the very fact of the way we were created. We're built to depend upon something. In other words, you were made to worship. From the very time you were born as a small child, you have been searching desperately for something that you can plug your life into to give your life meaning and significance and value. And so the question is not, or the issue is not that some people worship and other people don't. Everybody is a worshiper. You're either worshiping God or you're worshiping something else. It is the way you were made. It's at the very heart of what it means to be human. If you don't frame this discussion of the first commandment around that, then you treat your sin and your idolatry very superficially. Tim Keller says that the root and the heart of every single sin is idolatry. And what he means is that there is something deeper going on in the midst of our sin than simply breaking a rule. Oh, I lusted. Oh, I gossiped. Oh, I lied. The Bible says that everyone in this room, more deeply than anything else, is living for something. And that we have covenantally bound ourselves to something else. And when we do that, life doesn't work properly. Remember the Ten Commandments? One of their purpose is, purposes is to show us how life works best. Commandment number one, God is saying, life works best for you when I am at the center of your life. You see, it is why Augustine said that every human being is born with a God-shaped vacuum in their heart. And that our souls are restless until they find rest in God. And unfortunately, because of our sin, we often, instead of finding rest in God, we seek to find rest in our idols, and they destroy us. And that leads us to our second point. The first thing is the foundation of idolatry. You are made, big picture point, you are made to worship. We're all worshiping something. It's either God or... Or an idol. The second thing is the dynamics, the dynamics of idolatry. Two subpoints under this uh, second point. The first one is that our idols actually uh, deceive us. That gets at Romans 1, verse 25. Look at that verse with me. We exchange the truth of God for a lie. In other words, we start to believe the lie of the idol. All of our idolatry flows out of this common lie. And the common lie is this. God doesn't love us. God's not going to provide for us. God's not going to protect us. But an idol will. You see, idolatry, it's interesting because what makes it so attractive is that it's almost true, isn't it? I mean, let's be honest, there are times when our idols are exciting and make us happy and make us feel good. Sex feels good. Relationships makes us feel significant. 
Getting an A in a class or on a test makes us feel what? Successful and smart. When we do whatever we want, we feel free. When we have control or power over a group, we feel important. All those are good things, but we know deep down that they're not ultimate things. You see, at the end of the day, our idols will always leave us searching for more because they will never fully satisfy us. C.S. Lewis, my Lewis quote for tonight, says that pleasure, money, power, and safety are all as far as they go good things. The badness consists of pursuing them in the wrong way or pursuing them in the wrong method or pursuing them too much. Wickedness, when it, exa- when it is examined, turns out to be the pursuit of a good thing in the wrong way. What Lewis is saying is that your idols aren't the problem. Lewis is saying that you and I pursue our idols apart from God, and they end up destroying us. Let me be honest. I think the church has really not done a very good job in this area. What do I mean by that? Well, Christians, for the most part, have taught that, and maybe you grew up, and this is the way you thought, that the way you fix your idols is to avoid them and to stay away from them because they are bad. No. Idols are good gifts from God that you and I have made ultimate that you and I have taken and twisted and used them in the wrong way. Think about it. Money, sex, alcohol, power, wealth, grades, those things aren't the problem. The problem is that, verse 25, we have believed the lie. We've believed the lie that we can have everything without God. We've believed the lie that those things are actually going to deliver us. That those things actually love us and protect us and serve us better than God does. That's the first sub-point. The dynamics of idolatry, the first thing we need to realize is our idols deceive us. Secondly, uh, sub-point under number two is there's always a slavery aspect to idolatry. God says that unless I am your Lord, unless I am your God, then you will never be out of slavery to sin. Idolatry, when we engage and pursue our idols, remember point one, we always, because of the way we were made, do it covenantally. Did you hear that? We always do it covenantally. And it's subtle and it's profound and it's hidden. But the Bible says that we actually make covenants with our idols. And what that means is that our idols actually have power over us. Look at Romans 1. It says that God gave them up to their desires. What does that mean? It means that normal and good desires have overtaken them and become ultimate. That normal and good desires have actually become cocaine and heroin to us. And we've made idols out of them. 
And to me, that's the most terrifying aspect of idolatry, is that we, the idols have this capacity to blind us to the reality of what life is really like. Chuck Klosterman, in his book titled The Invisible Man, talks about a character named Valerie. Valerie is a binge eater. She smokes a ton of weed. And she is an obsessive exerciser. Every morning, Valerie pops out of bed and she does like 50 push-ups and 50 sit-ups and then she hits the door and goes out onto the road and runs for 30 minutes. She comes home, gets ready for work, goes to work, has a great day, comes home, and immediately when she walks into the door, she gets a jar of peanut butter and she opens it up, doesn't grab a spoon, takes her hands, and starts shoving the peanut butter into her mouth until the entire jar of peanut butter is completely gone. And she, you can imagine, she feels horrible physically, but she also feels horrible emotionally about herself. And so then she jumps on a treadmill, and she runs for 90 minutes as fast as she can until she almost passes out. She steps off the treadmill, falls down and collapses, and as she's sitting there reviewing her day and thinking about who she is and what she's become, the shame and the guilt start pouring into her life, into her heart. And so she needs to escape. She has to escape the pain. And so she goes and she smokes weed in order to escape the pain. One night her friend Jane comes over to watch Lost and Jane brings a bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken for them to eat. They eat half the bucket of chicken. Lost is over. Jane gets up and says, hey, Valerie, I'll take the bucket of chicken and I'll just toss it out on the way out into the dumpster. Valerie says, no, 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 no. I'll take this for the rest of the week for lunch. Well, that's a lie. Because Valerie knows that as soon as Jane leaves, she's going to eat the rest of the bucket of chicken. And that's exactly what she does. You see, she's trying to control her own life. She's trying to control what others perceive about her. And so her idols of reputation, her idols of success and control and image are literally destroying her. And the narrator comments on Valerie at this moment and what's happening to Valerie's soul. Listen to what he says. What's the most transparently interesting thing about this Valerie person to me is that she's a liar. Even to her closest friends, Valerie is lying about the way she lives. She doesn't want Jane to know that she could never save half a bucket of chicken until lunch tomorrow. She doesn't want Jane to know that she instantly knew that she would eat it all immediately. And that such an action was beyond her control. Instead, she chooses to exercise with the intensity of a decathlete and simply to sustain the physical appearance of normalcy. It's a hidden cycle. The stress of this fraud makes her want to escape from reality, which prompts her to smoke marijuana, which makes her eat compulsively, which forces her to exercise obsessively without the reward, which makes her original dishonesty so shameful. And then he finishes up with these two questions. Is this lie the totality of who she is? Is there any part of her personality that isn't dictated by this cycle? End of quote. And the sad answer 
is no. Her idols have overtaken her. She is actually enslaved to her idolatry and they are destroying her. See, that's what our idols do to us. And here's the scary thing, that oftentimes our idolatry doesn't look like eating disorders and addiction. Instead, our idols look like having it all together. They look like coming to a place like Ole Miss and being successful. They look like coming to a place like Ole Miss and climbing the social ladder and gaining social status. Can we talk? Listen, I love you. You know that. I know I've only been here a year. This is starting my second year. But here's an observation. Almost everyone on this campus is jockeying for social position and power. Everyone is trying to get a one-up on someone else. Why? Well, because it's how people here feel significant. It's how they feel like they're worth something. It's how they feel like they're somebody and they have value. And here's what it's masked in. It has on the outside, there, I see this cool aloofness as if you're just above it all. And that life is as simple and effortless as a whim. But here's what's going on on the inside. On the inside, if truth be told, lots and lots of people are a wreck. Because in the inside, they're saying, if I don't know the right obscure bands to listen to, (laughs) if I don't wear the right clothes, Nike shorts, Chuck T's, tank tops, if I don't get in the right sorority or fraternity next week, I'm done. I'm going to be forgotten. I'm going to be a nobody. I'm going to be in the fetal position on the inside of my heart. Friends, that is not freedom. That's slavery. That is idolatry. And Jesus has come to free you from that. Jesus comes and says that you can either serve your idols and be destroyed... Or you can serve me and I will give you life and I will restore you. Third point and final point, the solution for our idolatry. The foundation, the dynamics, what our idols do to us, and then thirdly, the solution for our idolatry. So what do we do? How do we battle our idols? Well, there's three subpoints under this, so hang with me. The first thing is under this last point is we've got to deal with the sin beneath the sin. And what that means is, and that's why that this is, discussion of idolatry is so important, is because it refuses to deal with just surface level things. It refuses to be superficial. For example, someone might say they have a money idol. 
But the truth is, having a lot of money merely serves something much more fundamental to who you are. It serves something deeper, a heart idol. A heart idol of comfort and power. You see, notice how doing that actually frames the discussion in a totally different way because so much of the time, what we tend to do is we send God, take away my love for money. God, take away my greed. Take away my worry about financial security. Oh God, please take it away. And then what? Nothing happens. Why does nothing happen when we ask God to change us? Because change is never going to happen in our hearts until we get to the root, the sin beneath the sin, the idolatry, till we get to the real thing in our life that is actually driving us. So how do you get there? We don't have the rest of the night to talk about it. So if you look at a handout I put in your seat, it's a Tim Keller handout. That will help you go deeper with figuring out what your idols are. Ask yourself these questions. And here's the thing. When you look at it, you're initially going to think, well, I'm all of these. Okay, no. Think about your primary idols. And so look for themes as you ask yourself those questions. That will help you change. Because it will help you address the sin beneath the sin, the root, rather than simply the symptoms. Second thing, we must see the delusional nature of our idols. We've got to start seeing our idols for what they really are, and that is a lie. Think about it. By nature, we reject things that are bad for us. We don't walk into a busy street of moving cars because we'll get hit. When we touch a hot plate, we instinctively pull back from that hot plate. But our idols are dangerous because they mask the danger. They deceive us. They create this delusional field that we will actually find life if we pursue them when in fact we find death. So what does that mean? Well, it means that you have to start seeing that you are the cause of the breakup between your boyfriend or girlfriend. You have to start seeing that it's actually your own insecurity that destroyed the relationship. And you have to start seeing that this cool aloofness is actually hurting you because it's keeping you from developing any real friendships around you. You see, our idols always destroy the thing that we are initially after in them. And we've got to start seeing that our idols will always demand a sacrifice. I'm going to go here and it might be painful for some of you. So please forgive me. But think about your workaholic father. He started out with very good intentions. He wanted to be successful. He wanted to make money so that he could provide for you and so that he could send you to college. He started out wanting to be a good employee. And before long, he started to find significance and value and importance in his work. And then, soon, the company couldn't do without him. And so he starts missing your soccer games, missing your plays, and then he stops showing up at family dinner. And he has put you 
on the altar of his idol. And it sucked the life out of you. And it sucked the life out of him too. Can I be honest? One of my biggest fears is that I will make an idol out of the ministry. You know that's possible, right? To make an idol out of the ministry and to actually put my family on the idol of ministry and totally suck the life out of them. I was reminded of this a few months ago. I'd known it had been happening for weeks, but I'm slow on the uptake, and so I didn't quite get it, and, and, I didn't, and part of it is I refused to hear it. But I noticed that my seven-year-old daughter, Kate, I mean, like, we could be sitting right across from one another, and it didn't matter where. She would do, Daddy, 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 where are you? You know, talk to me. It was almost this obnoxious pulling on my arm, and I'm like, Kate, I'm right here. And so finally, I really knew the answer. Uh, Finally, I had the courage to ask her, Kate, why do you say my name like a billion times when I'm sitting right in front of you? And here's what she said. Daddy, it's the only way I can get you to pay attention to me. My daughter is wishing that her daddy would pay attention to her instead of seeing him through the glow of his iPhone answering emails and returning text messages. You know the great thing about Christianity is that we have a God that doesn't demand our life in order for us to be loved and significant. You know the great thing about Christianity is that Jesus actually became the sacrifice for us because He loves us You see, that's how Christianity is different than the idols that you and I bow down to and adore. And real briefly, the third way that we battle our idols is we must be captured by a new affection. Thomas Chalmers says, he has this famous sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And basically the whole point is that we will never lay down our idols until something more beautiful captures us. Think about it, ladies. The way to get your eyes off of a good-looking guy is to what? Show you a great-looking guy. (laughs) Same is true. The ways to get our eyes off of our idols is for us to see Jesus for who He really is. And that is the one that we're looking for. The one that will truly satisfy our soul. The Bible says God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. The only way we're ever going to lay down our idols is when Jesus becomes more beautiful to us. And my prayer for all of us, myself included, that we would see Jesus and how much he loves us and that would so grip our heart that it would create this expulsive power in our lives so that we will be captivated by Jesus and not by these idols that are going to kill us. Let's pray.